Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and I'm with Audrey Waters, and this is the weekly EdTech Roundup podcast, thanks in part to Audrey's just brilliant and interesting writing every week, and I get to be audience. <laughs> well, uh, <thank> Audrey, you. <laughs> maybe the most fun I have is preparing for the show. First off, uh, wow, Reddit and slash dot. Yes, in fact, um, I think... Uh, my my server was so slammed on Saturday that I'm actually surprised anyone could click through. Um, and I rolled up to a larger size Amazon uh, instance on Sunday and still had about almost 20,000 page views uh, on Sunday. So Lovely. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so this was really a fascinating week of stories from you. Felt like more writing than before? Did you do more writing this week? It felt like I did do more writing this week. I'm not sure if I did. I, maybe I just uh, wrote better things. I don't know. <laughs> well, you certainly uh, wrote for a variety of um, I mean, your own website, then Mindshift and Inside Higher Ed. And you sort of a good number of stories. Was the high page views kind of a, a spark? Did, it, uh, did you find that that really encouraged you in the things you were writing? I think uh, I think it partially so. I mean, I think also you know, it's just it's good to know. Um, you know, this is one of the things that I've pushback I've had as a technology journalist before is this idea that technology uh, that when you write about education technology, no one really cares. And I think it's a great reminder um, for me. You know, a good encouragement that actually lots of people right now. Well. I think lots of people always have, but right now lots of people are paying attention to education technology, so it definitely encourages me to do more of what I'm doing. So, Well, I'm glad you're doing it. Okay, so the award for title of the week in a blog post is Apple EdTech Payola. <laughs> Apple and EdTech Payola. Yes. So you have a lot to say about EdTech, school contracting, and even about how it's reported. Well, this this story was actually um, this this story was a response to um, the latest the latest uh, article in a New York Times series called "Grading the Digital School," and all of the all of the stories by uh, Matt Rechtel have been quite critical of education technology, but in a way that seems to sort of, in my opinion at least, sort of miss the mark. And so this latest this latest story was about the ways in which um, schools or uh, the ways in which uh, companies are sort of wooing educators to buy their products by flying them to um, flying them out to Silicon Valley for sort of special events, special dinners, and whatnot. And one of the things that struck me as sort of um, odd about this piece was that it focused on Apple, which um, which, which isn't to say that Apple. I mean, Apple, uh, along with almost every tech big tech company. Um, and big education company do engage in these sorts of things, but Apple seems to have, you know, the, the momentum that we're seeing right now for Apple's adoption in the classroom, it actually doesn't seem to be based on the fact that, they've, that they take people out for dinner. It, it just seems, the, the article really seemed to miss, miss the mark for me. Well, and you also point out that they don't even link to other stories about the textbook industry and testing. Did it feel a little bit like it was... Not fully fair reporting? That's definitely how I felt. I mean, the New York Times itself has had, I think, within the last couple of months, two stories about Pearson engaged in just these sorts of practices um, for really what is a much, you know, a much larger, um, you know, a much larger dollar figure for getting state contracts for textbooks and for, and for, and for testing. Cosin, the Consortium for School Networking, often quotes uh, some report that showed that uh, of all of the industries, 
uh, in the United States, education is the lowest in the percentage of spending on ed tech. Is, was it hard to find figures on how much money was getting spent on technology and textbooks? It was actually. I, you know, I went to the to the budget of one of the one of the schools that was cited in the cited in the New York Times piece because I I was really curious to see sort of. I mean, that's one of these things you can't just you can't just throw out a figure. The school had spent six hundred thousand on an iPad and laptop, iPads and laptops for its for its students. And it's hard to sort of throw out a figure like that without actually contextualizing it. I mean, how much money do they spend on the cafeteria every year? I mean, how much money do they spend on textbooks? How much money do they spend on, you know, janitorial services? Um, and I couldn't actually find the line item in the school. I don't know if that's because those those things are paid for elsewhere. Perhaps they're st- it's state funding as opposed to a school's uh, funding. But I did see that the, the same amount of money that they spent on uh, this this uh, purchasing of, of technology is the same they spent on the athletics program, just to give you sort of a, a comparison. But so, of course, Steve Jobs comes into this story with two fascinating quotes. Um, um, you know, one about, you know, that education is not about technology. It's not going to make a dent. But the other that, you know, the iPad will be this disruptive device related here. Um, so, so if we see education as big business... Um, this isn't really a news story. It's just that the New York Times is being this ar- this article author is being critical of technology, and it seems like within the context, there's really a larger story that's always been there. It's not really just about education technology, right? And I think that, I mean I think that that's precisely I think that's precisely why this this particular series um, in the New York Times has felt so this has sort of felt. Um, it, it just off a little, you know, I mean, the, the critiques about, you know, schools spending a lot of money on technology, I mean, these are things we should be talking about, whether or not, you know, tools are being used appropriately in the classroom, we should have that conversation. Um, but this, the New York Times articles just seem to sort of, they all seem to sort of get the, the wrong, and they're very much concerned about whether or not these are improving standardized test scores, which coming back around to sort of why why we aren't criticizing Pearson uh, it was just a little, you know, a little ironic there. Okay, this is sort of a week of textbook issues. Yes, uh, partially well, because I think I, I have been, I have been reading the Steve Jobs biography and thinking about, thinking a lot about, you know, Apple's role in, um, you know, Apple's role in reshaping uh, both, you know, the the iPad, how the iPad can change education, but also. You know, Jobs' prediction that he was going to take on the textbook industry was supposed to be his next, um, the next target of his attention. In the story about uh, students using digital textbooks, you know, there are references to this concept of social reading. Then you talk about the quote from Steve Jobs about taking on the textbook industry, and you're not really impressed necessarily with the plan that that was described there. But I feel like we're animals that can sense an earthquake coming, mm-hmm. right? That we, that we recognize that there's something really big going to happen, but we don't really know yet how that's going to happen. Right. I mean, the, the, you know, the, I thought the study was really interesting, the fact that, you know, we're seeing consumers adopt ebooks at a phenomenal pace. I mean, every time the publishing industry let, you know, releases new statistics about readership and purchasing for, you know, for just general books. I mean, the, the amount of increase that we're seeing of ebooks is, is phenomenal. But when it comes to textbooks, students aren't making, they aren't even making sort of a, a, a 
they're making a shift at all. I mean, the last three years, they haven't increased their consumption of digital textbooks. So I think it's, I mean, I think that, I think that while it does feel as though things are happening in general with the publishing industry, um, I, the textbook, the textbook industry is, there's, they're not, even as they're starting to make the move to digital as well, they're really not doing it in a way that's appealing to students. And students will tell you that, you know, the cost of textbooks is really the bane of, you know, the bane of, of, of many of a college student. There are so many issues here. And, and in your roundup, which will be published by the time this, this podcast is actually published, you know, we've got the little story about the, uh, the Barnes & Noble Nook and the Kindle Fire, mm-hmm. which I think is going to be as much about movies as it's going to be about books. But then the, the wow story for me was were the teachers in a school district who created their own math textbook. That, that decluttered all of the other conversation here for me. Yeah, I mean, and I, I have to believe that this is the sort of thing, you know, particularly when we start looking at, you know, looking critically at line items as to what schools are spending money on. I mean, the textbooks are, the text schools spend a terrific amount of money on textbooks. And as the, these teachers said, you know, you sit, you keep those textbooks for upwards of a decade. And so even in a subject like, um, this was a, a they replace our math textbook. Even a subject like math that you could say, oh, math doesn't change. It's still, you know, this, the examples and many of the things that happen, um, you know, the, the curriculum feels out of date really quickly. So these teachers built their own textbook, and now it's a living document. They'll be able to um, update it as needed, you know, real time, as opposed to sort of waiting until it's time to sort of procure a new textbook. So I think that that is, that is a that is a huge deal. But again, you know, how is this going to fit into students' adoption? Will, will textbooks created by teachers as opposed to textbooks created by publishers, will that help with student adoption? Per, perhaps it will. Uh, yeah. For me, that answer is easy because it, it involves the participation of the teachers in the act of creation. And we've talked about this with Khan Academy and sort of the, the role of the teacher. And uh, I've for me, this was by far and away the story that cut everything else out and said, oh my gosh, this is the potential. It's not about publishers. It's not about sort of negotiating. It, this is, for me, the kind of the radical shift that I think makes so much sense. And I learned about this uh, a few years back because in a state in Brazil, they have the higher education students produce all of the textbook material for the uh, primary grades. And Ooh, that just fascinating. seemed that seemed brilliant to me. And there's a university in Texas that has the upper level language students create the the language videos for language learning for the lower class students. And again, it's this combination of teaching and learning. Right. You know, if I'm going to predict the next thirty years, that seems to me to hold the the power. Uh, well, anyway, we'll co- obviously we'll come back <laughs> to that quite a bit. Um, Teach.gov. Now under the control of Microsoft. Really? This made me so angry. Um, like, like I saw red. Uh, and this was actually part of a larger, the government, the Department of Ed actually rolled out a pretty interesting um, new platform this week that I actually haven't ta- had time to sort of dig into technologically. It's sort of an open, open content meets open technology platform. But it was coupled with this announcement that they were handing over the teach.gov website to Microsoft. Um, and that just sort of blew my mind. Uh, I, I, the, the hardest irony for me was 
that it's been an example of the use of Drupal. <laughs> and now, right. now it's a Microsoft site. Right. I mean, the, and the teach.gov, teach.gov was, a, was uh, rolled out at the beginning of the year in a way to sort of recruit teachers to the profession and sort of um, just with information, you know, it was a place to go with information about sort of how, like, what are the state's certification requirements? What are, you know, what sort of degrees do you need? What sort of financial aid packages? And so handing this over to Microsoft in terms of the content seems troublesome, but handing it over in terms of all of these efforts that, that, the, that the government has made to move its websites to Drupal, to turn around and hand, hand it over to Microsoft, it, it was really, really sad. Now Microsoft did respond, <laughs> Microsoft responded after I wrote my story and said they will uh, change this from teach.gov to teach.org, but my point still stands, I think. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, nicely juxtaposed with that was another huge wow story for me, but in the opposite direction, a very positive direction. Your story on the New York City's General Assembly blew me me away. What is this? And wow. Yeah, so this is a a new uh, open, sort of like a new open office space in New York City. And it actually, if you... Uh, it looks a lot like a student lounge or a student library. Um, there's sort of tables where people can work together. You can rent a table there. You can take classes there. Um, and it's really just about helping to create and foster the entrepreneurial um, engineering community in New York. So there's, um, it just has lo- lots of different levels of participation. You be- can become a member and get access to lots of classes. You can just, you know, it's open to the public. Um, or there's several uh, several startups that are actually um, renting space there, and so they actually all have the chance to collaborate and work together as well. So it really is blending the this taking the notion of a campus, a public space, and offering classes um, and, and encouraging people to sort of build build their build their entrepreneurial education and their engineering education together. I think it's really interesting. I, I love the story, and I, I, you know, who, who am I to 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 make these grand predictions? <laughs> it is you and me on the microphone. But you marry that with the community college system, and it feels like there's just this potential for an incredible learning renaissance. I think so too. I mean, and these are you know, I think that these are these are some of the things that when you think about um, when you think about what you. You know, I mean, of course, I mean, I spent most of my adult life in in higher ed. But when you think a lot of what you learn in school, um, it, you tend to not actually get a lot of opportunities for practical, hands-on learning experiences. And this is sort of this is sort of the real deal. So it's really interesting. And because it's in New York, it's in you know the the tech community in New York is so vibrant right now. There's a lot of really fascinating people that you get to sort of take classes with or be with, spend time with. That are I mean huge huge opportunities uh, I think for learners. So. Your story made me want to go out and look for space <laughs> to do the same thing. That, I mean, and I think that you know I think that we're seeing we're seeing people really think. I mean, the, the library story that we'll talk about in a minute is another example of that. Like, how can we take spaces in our community and rethink what they're you know rethink how we're going to use them? Um, you know, especially as you know as. We, you know, people talk about sort of moving online, but really, I think that it's also an opportunity for us to to think, rethink the offline space, um, rethink how what we're doing in some of our tradition with our some of our traditional institutions like a university or 
uh, like a library. Yeah, and, and this is a nice pair with your story about the library as makerspace. Um, I had an interesting – I held last week I held the Library 2.011 Future of Libraries virtual conference. And we had uh, registrants from 153 countries, 6,800 people signed up. It was a, an incredible response. And what's intriguing to me is sort of the, the duality. We have this um, these mixed emotions we have about librarians. A guy who works in the office next to me said, well, what's a librarian? That's like a bus driver. It's sort of an entry-level job. And I thought, wow. we, we really don't get how much the librarian is the model for the teacher of the next 25 years. Yeah, it was, it was, that's interesting. I had a comment on, the, um, on my blog post, actually, about the library. Someone saying, oh, this will never happen because librarians' jobs are just to sort of buy books and put books on the shelf. Yeah, as if there were no graduate programs that librarians have to go through. I mean, as though it weren't actually a a really solid and interesting profession. But you see in a lot of communities, libraries getting cut, librarians getting cut. Uh, I'm I'm fascinated by by our perception right now of libraries, but also by what seems to be an inevitable um, pairing or, or... ultimate combination of library science and traditional ways of thinking about teaching and learning. And David Lurcher um, talks about this as the learning commons. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kept thinking of that phrase as I thought about your library as makerspace and as I thought about the General Assembly, that that we're going to redefine the learning space and librarians are going to have a big part in that. I think so too. I mean, and this this library story really excited me um, when I was contacted by Lauren Spenley and told me that she believes that her library is the first to sort of um, to, to become a public makerspace like this. So they're starting to buy, start trying to buy, they have a 3D printer, they're looking to get some other tools to get people, to get people a hands-on experience, I mean, with technology. And now librarians have often been, you know, librarians often are the people who teach um, and, you know, particularly in, in school, you know, teach students how to, how to search for information. And now that's online as opposed to with the card catalog. Um, but libraries often, you know, they often do offer sort of classes on introduction to Excel, for example. And it's really great to see uh, this library taking the next leap, which is going to be teaching, you know, teaching programming and teaching some of these um, sort of really a brave step, step forward in teaching sort of hardware assembly. And it's really exciting. Well, so there's an intriguing segue then from that story to the STEM dropout story, yeah. because there, you know, the open source movement, the technology movement, largely operates on an apprenticeship model. Yes, and you see that apprenticeship model coming out in the makerspace concept, um, and maybe you're not seeing it in institutionalized instruction on STEM, and is that a part of maybe why STEM? Uh, dropout rates have have gotten so high. Yeah, I think that the the you know we all, with all this focus on sort of preparing students for STEM careers, it, the the fact that so many students leave, uh, so many students who are you know well equipped, love science and technology, have good grades from high school, they go into college planning on majoring in science or engineering or, or uh, technology, math. Um, and they, they change their major. And I, I think that there are a lot of reasons. Um, I think the fact that if you look at the GPA, um, you know, the GPA in science classes are, are often very, very low. It seems like the classes are almost designed to weed you out. Like the, you know, it, like intro to organic chemistry, it's like a trial by fire. And it's not, 
you know, those classes aren't really designed to make sure everyone does well in, uh, you know, in their biology major. They're meant to make sure that like <laughs> half the class fails. But I do think you're right. I do think that this lecture model, the lack of hands-on learning opportunities, this, this um, not an opportunity for practical uh, project-based learning, I do think that that's really damaging because that is why we want to go, that is why you want to to do science, right? You, you, I mean, I would think most people, it's about, it is about experimentation. It isn't about, uh, you know, theory. Fascinating. Okay. What is the social graph? <laughs> I loved this. I loved this story. So the, so the social graph has been something that really, I think we, we associate most commonly with um, with Facebook. It's been something that Mark Zuckerberg talks about a lot, this idea that what we'll be able to do based on our participation in social networks is that we'll be able to have a graph that sort of ties together and models all of our social relationships, all of the things we like, all of the things we do, where we're from, who we're friends with. Um, and that's, um, I think that um, that's a, an, an interesting way of, of thinking about our social data, and I'm not sure how to say his name, um, but the, the founder of Pinboard wrote a, wrote a really great response to this concept of the social graph this week, saying that it's, it's neither. It's not a graph, right? It are, this is all too, far too complex to, be, to have models um, of this, and it's not social, you know, it's it's not actually it's not actually a, a, any sort of representation of our uh, of our, uh, of the complexities of our of our lives. Yeah, I had really mixed emotions about all of the stories, from the Forbes article to the to the one you just mentioned to to just sort of thinking in general about it. Um, in part because it's a reminder of, of what we talked about last week that because we can't precisely measure the things we value highly, we tend to place too high a value on the things we can precisely measure. Right. So, but these happen to be social things, right? So, in in some ways, we're we're blinded or we have blinders on that that uh, the things that are be, that are taking place in Facebook are in fact a representation of our actual social lives. At the same time, it does feel like there's going to be an incredible amount of data that will illuminate many of our cognitive and social interactions that, that will only really come to light as there's enough data to provide interesting information. No, and I think that this is why this is why this blog post really had me thinking about, you know, is there an education graph, which is something, or a learning graph, or a student graph, because it's, it's also tied to what, you know, what, again, exactly what we were talking about with some of these learning analytics, is that, you know, can we build this, or, you know, people are already saying that they are building it now, but what does it look like, and what is it going to mean to be able to um, have this graph? I think it's actually a very powerful thing, um, but... And I, and I do think that we will, you know, I, hopefully it will grow sort of grow organically, um, as the Pinboard founder says, is that, we'll, you know, something is going to come along organically rather than us being compelled to click on things, be compelled to sort of go through these motions of, of um, because, you know, because we're, we're supposed to, we're supposed to, you know, we're supposed to participate in, our, in, in education or in, quote, learning uh, this way. Right, and certain things are supposed to fit into certain categories, and the, and the categorization carries with it a whole value set. Exactly. Um, okay, so for me, th this really brought me back to the story of the teachers creating their own textbook. Mm -hmm. It brings me back to this idea of education as a process 
versus an outcome. And, and that, you know, in my opinion, we need to be looking at education the same way we look at democracy, which is about participation and activity. And so I read that and thought, this is interesting. It's going to be very enlightening in a lot of ways. But in fact, if we look at ourselves as human beings and we really recognize how we operate, it's not going to capture the, the very local, very personal interactions that, for me, define learning. Right. I mean, I think that that is, you know, I think that that's... That's, I mean, I think that that's precisely the point of the original uh, po- po- point of the, the there is no social graph argument, too, is that these are things that are so complex and changing all the time that it is, right now at least, I mean, almost unimaginable to be able to sort of model that, to come up with the, you know, I mean, when we're talking about coming up with the code, literally, to be able to mark sort of how I feel today about this particular subject that I'm learning, you know, based on the subject, based on how I'm feeling today, based on, you know, what I ate for breakfast, based on, you know, whether or not I did my homework, um, all of the, there's just like a myriad of, of factors that go into like any one little tiny learning moment in the classroom. And to think of us being able to pin that down um, technologically, t- to have a graph, is, is, is challenging. So... Anyway, your posts this week were great (laughs) reading. Okay, in your roundup, Idaho is now mandating students to take two credits online to graduate from high school. Good thing? I think that this is, I mean, I'm I'm torn about this. I'm, you know, I think that, I think that you can have, I think it is possible to have good online learning opportunities. I think that face-to-face will trump uh, most of those scenarios. I, one of the things I couldn't find about this is actually who's teaching those online classes. And that's one of the questions that I have. Is this being outsourced to, um, or, you know, is this being outsourced to non-Idaho teachers? Are they tapping into a larger network of companies, say, that like the Florida Virtual Schools um, slash Pearson are, are offering? Uh, I'd like some more information about that. My experience has been uh, that, uh, number one, that I consistently am encountering people who are talking about how much they have enjoyed the relationship building that actually happens in online classes that's harder to take place in a physical classroom. Surprised me, but it's been a sort of a consistent thing I hear from teachers. Interesting. The second piece that's interesting to me is I'm consistently also hearing that local districts and educational organizations are creating their online programs in order to keep dollars in their own system. Hmm. And in a, in a very interesting way, I'm actually kind of liking that which is that the financial pressure is uh, creating um, incentive for the, for the local schools to create their own online programs. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, and I, I think that there are, I think that, you know, it's going to be important for, uh, for students to, um, to have, you know, have digital, uh, be exposed to all sorts of digital opportunities. I just, I'm just, um, you know, the, to see the um, some of the folks in Idaho react so strongly to it, I'm just I, I need a little bit more information about exactly what's going on there. Yes, a story that will I'm sure come up again and again. Yeah. Uh, low income internet access. Are we getting closer to universal broadband, or was this a red herring? <laughs> well, you know, when Comcast first rolled out its 9.99 um, offering for high, uh, 9.99 uh, high-speed internet for low-income families, they got a lot of sort of praise for this. And I think it's important to remember that this was actually required um, as part of their merger with NBC. And so now we're sort of seeing more companies on board with this. 
um, some of the big cable providers, but it's not everybody. And I, I mean, I do think that it's, it's a good move, but again, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing some of these big technology companies hopping on the bandwagon to sort of offer their, you know, to provide their services in a way that I think we should, you know, just scrutinize. Yeah, the complexities of telecom, media companies, um, these are hard things for me to fathom because they happen at such huge scales and you, and you assume, you know, sort of deep-rooted incentives around decision-making. And right. I worried a little bit that, you know, going to the low-price model distracts from the sort of the core sense that I have that we really need, uh, you know, sort of like universal dial tone. You need the universal broadband. It just should be a part of our economic growth concept. Yes, I think so too. I mean, and and I think that, you know, it's interesting that this that these are cable providers too. After all, you know, with all of the talk of people cutting the cord, um, that that we're, we're we are looking at cable. This, these are cable companies, not tele, telecom companies. Although sometimes they are the same beast, but it's you know, it's just interesting to see these companies sort of move to to continue to continue getting in continue getting their their services into our homes. Interesting. So I don't want to sound like uh, I'm suspicious of everything that the government does in education, <laughs> but um, I hate hearing the, the Department of Education say they're going to remove silos as though <laughs> this is the role they need to be playing. So the learning registry, uh, is this game changing or is it just another misunderstanding of what's going on with the web and education? I, I want to look at this a, a little bit more closely because um, the – the technology behind this looks really interesting. Um, I was talking with someone from the Department of Ed Tech, and he was explaining t- this to me as being um, that, it, that it uses these nodes that are allowing people to sort of um, cr- create and share and track information in a what sounded like a, a, an interesting distributed way. But I think you're right. I mean, I, I have to wonder sort of, Again, it's uh, again. It comes back to all of this collection of data too. Is that this isn't actually what the, the learning registry isn't a portal. It isn't a website where you go and find the content you need. Um, it sounds as though it's a way of tracking the data that your students and teachers are using. Uh, I th- my sense is that's going to have value. Mm-hmm. It will provide um, you know opportunities. But more and more I see this disconnect where there's this sense that what's taking place on the web is, a, a, um, is about needing to create more and more sort of complex data-driven repository-like content. When what I'm seeing is more and more that it's the social, right? So teachers are, are spending time after their working hours to connect with each other, to, to share lesson plans, to share teaching practices because it's social. Right, <laughs> And, and I've, 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 maybe I'm way off base here, but it feels to me like these efforts that don't, that don't involve the social. And, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm going to tell a tale a little out of school here, but, I, I, you know, somebody did call me about this from one of these organizations. And I said, have you actually gathered a teacher council and have you talked to them about what they need? No. <laughs> so what's driving this? Well, it's the, you know, the, the board of directors wants this and it's Amanda. And I right. thought, exactly. if you're not even involving the teachers and helping you know what it is that they want. Now, this is going to lead me to another piece here. It's the, you know, the whole story about how, um, uh, how 
uh, successful applications get built, and it, and it relates to Steve Jobs, and it relates mm-hmm. to technology. But this sort of misunderstanding that we can top-down create things that will be successful in the social web, when in fact all of our examples are really of sort of bottom-up demand. Right. I mean, and I think that you know, I think that if that you know, the educators that I talk to, they they talk about sort of wanting to be able to, f- um, you know, find find the right content for. And they want their students to be able to easily find content on the web, but I don't know if like they, that's certainly not framed in ter- in terms of sort of a, a metadata question, right? And so I think that this is sort of like a top down, definitely a top down metadata uh, move. But like I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna play around uh, with the t- with the sort of technology behind the uh, uh, behind the scenes uh, over the weekend and hopefully have a story about a little bit more about what's going on with the learning registry. So I, I really hope that that provides more teachers with opportunity to find good content that matches their lessons. But my sense is they're overwhelmed, they're overworked, they're overtaxed with all of the expectations that they have. And that what the web is showing us is that they want the passion back. They want the right. social. They want to connect with each other. So creating another sort of mandated kind of place you're supposed to go for me it left me feeling like this is you know sort of an example of how difficult it is for institutions to see this power shift taking place yeah okay online course growth is slowing do we need to worry i don't think so i mean i I think that i mean i think that it's it is interesting with all of the talk you know all of the buzz about online education that it i mean has it plateaued are we sort of at are we at peak peak online learning i'm not sure Okay, and then sort of finally, uh, South by Southwest. Yes. Uh, and, and I will put in a plug my panel on K-12 teachers, which is all about this uh, teachers being part of the redefinition of education was accepted, so that's there. But I will tell you that I'm still shocked as someone who submitted sessions and then was accepted. I have never received an email from them telling me, even that I was admitted. <laughs> That's funny. Well, I'm. I have. My, it looks like the panel that you proposed with me on it was not admitted. So now, now it's, this is one of those moments when your panel doesn't get accepted. Your presentation doesn't get accepted to a conference. You sort of have to make the decision: Are you going to attend or not? So we'll see if I end up in Austin this in in March or not. Well, they do a good job of kind of keeping you on the line because <laughs> they're going to announce the second round of acceptances. And in fact, there was a. The hard deadline was, in fact, not a hard deadline because they made it clear they were still going to be accepting certain kinds of things afterwards. I, I'm, I'm intrigued by the process, not having attended before. Um, and, also, and again, as you mentioned, I did, did submit three sessions. One was accepted, don't know about the other two, and have never received any kind of email <laughs> confirmation from them. Um, but you mentioned that they've uh, announced the, uh, uh, LeVar Burton is going to be the uh, keynote speaker. Yes. And was there anybody else worth kind of paying attention to um, in that I announcement? That, uh, I believe they said that Karen Cater was going to be there. I looked briefly over the list of panelists, but um, I don't recall. But it was LeVar Burton definitely stood out. Personally, I have a lot of questions for him. Um, I, well, as I tend to have a lot of questions for lots of folks, but um, about sort of what his plans are now that he's turned Reading Rainbow into a for-profit startup. So that should be interesting. interesting. <laughs> for me, the bigger question is, can South by Southwest capture the EDU kind of energy around social media that the traditional ed tech conferences are having a hard time really embracing. Yeah, that, I mean, and I think that it's interesting to think of sort of the, 
you know, the genesis of South by Southwest EDU last year was it was built very closely in conjunction with one of the Texas education groups. So it's interesting to see sort of that seems like a, a different sort of move than a more, um, like, I don't know. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll probably go and then we'll be able to, we'll be able to assess what we think. <laughs> I'm going to go and I'm going instead of going to Cosin, uh, which uh-huh. is a show I've gone to for years. And I'm intrigued by that choice that I'm making. Not that the Cosin show doesn't have tremendous value for the people who who are technology directors and IT directors, but um, I, I'm interested to see if 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 this sort of signals a shift. If my own choices here signal a shift in sort of the larger desire for conversations that are really more specific um, um, and and don't you know, especially at a show like ISTE, or where you know, a good half of the participants are first time attending teachers. Right. Who are learning very core basic things that really, if you've been there a couple of years, you don't want to be at that basic level. Yeah, no, I think that that's, uh, and it'll be interesting to see sort of what what happens at uh, South by Southwest EDU in terms of that. I mean, I heard some feedback that last year's event was a bit like that, and it, it was a lot of sort of talking about products. But I think that um, you know companies talking about their products, and I think that. By the looks of the panelists, that's not what's um, scheduled for this year. So we'll see. Is there another conference besides South by Southwest that will be sort of in this public way bringing together a lot of the people who are sort of VC, startup-oriented, and the ed tech folks? I don't know. I don't. I can't think of one off the top of my head, particularly with the uh, with the VC community involved. I mean, the the, the other. The other sort of event that I'm really interested in, or events that I'm really interested in, in terms of thinking about community building and education and technology are maker fairs, right? And so these opportunities sort of bring together folks to show off their hobbies, to show off their hacking and their hobbies. Um, I think that there's a lot of really exciting grassroots opportunities there. Well, Audrey, again, a great week. So delightful to um, both read your material and then be able to talk about it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. All right. We'll talk to you next week. Okay.